Welcome to the Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Peter Sears. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Well, thank you for having me. Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Three things. Okay. Um, well, I don't know about interesting, but uh, let's see. Off the bat, um, I... Um, Love to scuba dive. I'm actually advanced, an advanced open water scuba diver. Um, I wish I had more time to read for fun. <laughs> um, and let's see, I, I think I can just about verbatim quote the original, all three original Star Wars movies. How's that? <laughs> oh, wow. You've, um, you've, you've got a fan there because uh, I love the original three Star Wars yeah. movies and, and, um, in typical Gen X fashion, I haven't been happy with any of the other movies that came afterwards. <laughs> no arguments. <laughs> uh, funnily enough, I, my parents took me to see Star Wars in the cinema when it came out. And I was only five years old at the time. And they'd mm -hmm. been told it was a good family movie. But uh, my twin brother and I were petrified and we hid under the, our seats when Darth Vader came onto the screen. <laughs> so <laughs> we didn't really appreciate it at, at first, but... Uh, as we got older and watched it again, we grew to love it. I only remember, I only remember Empire Strikes Back in the movies. I would have been, I was about five or I was about, I was six at the time. I was only two when the original came out, so I don't remember. So where do you go scuba diving? Because my knowledge of U.S. geography isn't crash hot, but I'm pretty sure Tennessee is a landlocked state, isn't it? Yes. I don't get enough to, chance to do it much any uh, recently, but I'm um, a lot in the. Uh, in the Caribbean, um, West Coast, um, mostly is where I've done the uh, Bahamas. Uh, most most of my diving has been in the, uh, the Caribbean. Yeah. Oh, that and so that makes sense because <laughs> I have never been there, but I've heard it's got some uh, stunning beaches and and a fantastic sort of water culture there. Yes, it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I want to get back into it. <laughs> so, where did you study, and what are your qualifications? Sure. Well, I'm a, I'm board certified family uh, family practice, so I see all all age groups from infants to um, elderly folks. Um, I went to med school at Ross University School of Medicine, and I did my uh, family practice residency at a uh, universe, University of Tennessee in Knoxville. So that's kind of how I sort of got to grow some Tennessee roots. And uh, so I finished my residency in 2005, and I've been practicing uh, various clinics uh, ever since. So close to about 20 years as a, a as an MD with a, with a clinical practice. Do you have any field of specialization or are you um, just generally family practice? Yeah, uh, what, what they know is, as you, you may know as GP or family practice. Uh, so no, no other further specialties, but all age, just uh, all age groups. Yeah, that's right. Um, you guys are called MDs in the US and then here in Australia, we, we, call, uh, we call them GPs for general practitioner. Well, we call right. We we know as well. We're all MD. Uh, we're all MDs, but we usually go by FP as the uh, moniker, family practice instead of GP mostly. Yeah. So, what was it about medicine that attracted you to it as a career? You know, so my dad, uh, my dad's a pediatrician. Uh, and probably of many of our many of your listeners may be familiar with his uh, childcare books, uh, Doctor William Sears. And so, I was sort of introduced early on into and to the field of medicine. So I would uh, go, you know, go with them to the hospital from time to time or spend time in the clinic. And it just really clicked for me. And, um, you know, just really found the whole field fascinating, the, just the whole idea of keeping people healthy and healing the sick. You know, what really got me kind of turned on to family medicine uh, in general was number one, the aspect of being able to see all age groups and really the uh, the preventative medicine aspects, being able to prevent illness, um, and and you know, not only of course you know help help those who are, who are sick, but also even prevent um, them from getting preventable diseases. And that's really the core and the heart of uh, of, of family practice is is uh, keeping people healthy. 
So far from the uh, common sort of anti-scientific uh, stereotype of a, of a doctor who, whose only goal is to ensure that you remain a, an ongoing patient, uh, <laughs> the, the real goal is to, in, is to ensure that you come back as, as uh, infrequently as possible. Absolutely. You know, my job, and, I, and we don't do a very good job of it, but you know, my job, if, if we're doing our job perfectly, we could put cardiologists and pulmonologists and surgeons would be much less busy in this country. But <laughs> So what advice would you give to anyone who's considering a career in medicine? We've definitely projected a, a shortage of physicians ongoing over the next 20 years in this country. And, you know, we need more good people uh, to to move into this field. I always tell people if I'm working with students or, or younger, you know, younger physicians or people that are thinking about getting into a field of medicine, you know, your heart has to be in the right place. Um, you know, don't, you know, this is not about getting into it for, you know, for money or prestige, you know, it's, it's a long, hard, it's a long, hard road and a lot of blood, sweat and tears involved. And, you know, if, if, if you're not in it for, First and foremost, for the patients, then you know maybe that's not the career for you. Have you ever known anyone who has died from a vaccine-preventable disease, or or has been permanently harmed by one? So uh, you know, uh, one that immediately comes to mind. I do have some uh, some family friends, some older family friends that did uh, prior to the polio vaccine that did suffer long-term effects from polio. It was ravaging the U.S. before um, and all over the world, of course, and certain areas still is, sadly. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the one that, that I've really, even at a younger age, did have some exposure to. But frankly, uh, Dave, you know, as, as a, uh, over the past 20 years as a, as a, as a med student and, and as a physician, um, I have not had uh, either a patient or, um, uh, or, or friend or family member uh, die from a uh, vaccine preventable illness. I can count on about one, I can count on one hand the number of uh, chickenpox cases I've seen since I've been in training over 20 years. Uh, it's that rare now. Prior to the rotavirus uh, vaccine being introduced early 2000s, definitely saw a lot of hospitalizations of young children severely dehydrated from rotavirus, and thankfully didn't have any didn't lose any patients from from that. Uh, but when it comes to things like measles, polio, um, haemophilus, influenza B, meningitis, uh, I, I have not. I have, actually have a good little story. My, my uh, father used to tell me about uh, back when he was in training uh, as in his pediatric residency in the 60s prior to um, the HIV or haemophilus influenza B meningitis vaccine, they would have entire wings of the pediatric hospital devoted to Hib meningitis. Um, and this, and this, it's vir virtually non-existent in, 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 in this country now. So he, he, he came from a time where he knew full well the horrible consequences of, of things that we just don't, we just don't see anymore and we take for granted. And we take that for granted because, you know, I think in many ways that vaccines have become a victim of their own success in that way. <laughs> I think it was a Dr. Paul Offit who helped to develop the rotavirus vaccine, is that correct? That's I'm, correct, yes. I'm pretty yes. sure it was him, yeah. And although I'm not familiar with the disease myself, I, I didn't have it as a kid and I don't know anyone who's had it. From what I've read about it, I understand that it is pretty brutal and certainly in developing countries, it can be uh, an absolute horror sweeping through and, and massively increasing the infant mortality rate. So this was a, a massive, massive breakthrough. It's got to be one of the more recent uh, infant vaccines developed, I, I think. So yeah, that was a, uh, a huge, huge success. Yes, it's one of the, it's the one vaccine that I was uh, able to witness where it, it was not yet, it had not yet been fully approved when I was in med, in med student and as a young uh, training resident. And I've seen just when it was fully introduced, I believe in 05 or 06, just dramatic changes. I, you know, prior to the vaccine, it would even in the states, you know, you'd have fifty thousand hospitalizations and about forty deaths a year from rotavirus. Worldwide, I believe that number is in is in the hundreds of thousands of deaths. I, I haven't checked the latest figures. Yeah. Um, also, on chickenpox, 
I caught chicken pox and measles when, when I was a kid. They weren't on the state schedules at the point when I was you know, young enough to be vaccinated with them. And I know from experience that both of those diseases are utterly miserable. Yes. Uh, and I was fortunate enough not to have any sort of permanent damage. Well, my, my twin brother, his uh, eye muscles were damaged by the measles. So he had to have uh, an operation to correct them. I think at about the age of seven or, or something. I did get chicken pox because I was too young or I was, the vaccine had not been developed when I was, uh, you know, when I was little and it was miserable. I, I had scars for years and years and, you know, I, you know, no long-term, but, you know, uh, and then it's an amazingly, both the measles and the chickenpox vaccines are just fabulous uh, vaccines. I mean, 95% plus efficacy and for most people, life, life for life. And, and you know, I, I predict that in the next 20 to 40 years, we'll see a dramatic decrease in shingles along with that in, in the States uh, as, as the vaccinated population kind of moves into, um, you know, into their 40s, 50s and 60s when you start to see um, more commonly shingles be reactivated. You know, thankfully we have a fabulous vaccine for shingles now um, for those who had chickenpox though. <laughs> well, we moved to South Australia when my daughter was still under a year old and obviously before my son was born. So um, both of my children have been fully vaccinated with, you know, with the, uh, the usual Australian schedule as well. So that was, that was handy. And of course, um, Joey got her, uh, her hep B and her, um, yeah, vitamin, uh, vitamin K shot when, when she was an infant. Yeah. But yeah, I, I really do think the UK would benefit from getting chicken you know, on the schedule. I have some Facebook friends in the UK and I, I have heard that that is being discussed. Because uh, I know a lot of other European countries, it is, it's, been on the, it's been on the schedule for, for years now. Um, so that may be moving in that direction. Do you feel that attitudes towards vaccination have changed somewhat over the past few generations? I do. I do. I, I, I feel that, you know, a lot of the older generation that maybe as children came up in the age when, you know, polio vaccines were first developed, the HIV vaccines and then the measles, and even in, the, in those in the era of the smallpox vaccine, uh, I think they were able to see firsthand the, the changes that happened when those vaccines were introduced. So I tend to be in, in the, in, in the, you know, the, Oct octogenarian population, or maybe the, those 70 plus, much more, you know, very just grateful of vaccines, I think, uh, and are, are much more likely to be very pro-vaccine. Uh, I, I do believe that, like I mentioned earlier, when I, you know, I mentioned that uh, I do believe that vaccines have become a victim of their own success, meaning people that have been raised in the era of these this, this vaccine schedule have not seen these horrible diseases that these vaccines prevent. So I think there has been sort of a, I don't know if it's right, right word of maybe just a more uh, almost like laissez-faire kind of attitude or maybe uh, a, you know, well, maybe do we really need these? And that's where we, you know, we've, we've had these, these, these vaccine, skept vaccine skepticisms creep in, but in many ways, it's it's like I said, it's just because uh, our generation and and younger generations just weren't around when when these illnesses were uh, were were ravaging populations. And a lot of a very common argument you hear is the sanitation argument, where you know the well, it's we don't see measles and all these things because sanitation's got so much better. But I, you know, I, that's really a non-starter for me because I don't. It's not as if back in the 60s, 50s, and 60s we were. The U.S. wasn't exactly a, a, a developing nation by any stretch. I mean, we had already had well-established sanitation measures in place, well understood for decades. Uh, you know, the importance for hygiene, and so I've never really quite understood that uh, that argument that some people try to make. Yeah, that's a very a very good point to make because if it was absolutely true that sanitation was, you know, the game changer for all of these diseases then sanitation mysteriously kicked in at different points for different diseases over the decades and, and 
every time just happened to coincide with the release of a vaccine. So it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Plus, as I understand it, measles doesn't really care about sanitation. Um, and so some other diseases don't either. They, they will travel and spread very rapidly. Measles is massively infectious and just doesn't really care about sanitation. You can have clean hands and, and everything and you know the most scrupulous standards of hygiene and measles will still get you. So it's not as simple as saying, yeah. well, all, all diseases can be easily curbed with sanitation. It's not how it works. No, absolutely. Measles is as a uh, even exponentially higher uh, infectivity rate, even compared to COVID. Um, you know, it's about a one to six, uh, one to 16, I believe. So every one person that gets measles can infect up to 16 other individuals. And uh, they've actually studied that if you're in any, if in your, if you're in a room with anybody with measles, you know, your chances of, and if you're unvaccinated, of course, your chances are, are, are extremely, uh, it's, it's one of the most infectious airborne, airborne uh, vaccine preventable diseases we, we have, or if not the most. So what do you think are the main reasons people refuse vaccination today? It's less difficult to say, well, you know, vaccination is a new science, as people were saying, you know, back in the, the 19th century or the 18th century. Uh, now, of course, the argument is, oh, these, these vaccines themselves are new, so we don't know what the, the long-term consequences could be, arguments like that. But in your experience, what are the main reasons that have been presented to you? You know, it, it varies a lot, David. It really is. It, it really varies a lot from person to person. I, I, I truly believe that most individuals that are what we refer to as on the fence or skeptical about the skeptical about vaccines, a very small percentage of them are just are staunchly, truly anti-vax or anti-vaxxers. I believe the majority the majority of folks who are hesitant, vaccine hesitant or choose, you know, alternate vaccine schedules or choose to delay vaccines or not, or, 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 or wait and take a wait and see approach. A lot of them are just confused. And, you know, a lot of them are confused by, by misinformation. They're confused by uh, a lot of what they may read online or what they, what people tell them. Um, many, many of these people are young, young parents who may be, you know, maybe don't have a, a, a strong science background or maybe, you know, didn't, you know, didn't take a lot of courses past, you know, high school or things like that. And, you know, they, un, you know, unfortunately get a lot of misinformation, uh, you know, so I, th I think there's just a, a wide variety um, of, of people uh, that, that uh, they lead, lead down that road. And I think in the just in the era of, in the 20 years where we've seen social media explode, we've seen, you know, also, sadly enough, a correlation of, between, you know, increasing vac vaccine skepticism being, many of that being driven by social media, you know, and, and as, a, as, a, as a big factor. And like I said, these are, a lot of these people are young parents who are just getting getting bombarded from all sides from different pe from different people and they end up just being a lot of times just scared and confused and and sometimes they make the decision well maybe the best decision is is to wait and see or 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 I'm going to delay my shots or I'm going to hold off for 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 now and and of course you know that's also um, aligned with summarizing skepticism amongst you know medical professionals um, uh, a big, strong driving force in the anti-vaccine community is these a lot of these conspiracy theories that that claim the medical community is just giving shots as a as a money maker. They they you know doctors you know FPs like me and pediatricians just give shots because they make us lots of money. That they don't actually. By the way, <laughs> that's a, maybe a that's maybe a story from another time. But you know the, these conspiracy theories are really pushed really hard by the uh, by by the. The staunchly anti-vax communities and and it resonates with people um, unfortunately and um, it kind of creates a you know a, a, a us versus them sort of thing that we now see playing out in the broader picture in COVID too and I know that we might discuss that later on but um, but like I said getting back to your point I think there's a lot of many people come from various various journeys that lead them on the path of being skeptical of vaccines but I do believe that the, the, the majority of people 
a small percentage of people, it doesn't matter what you can tell them. It doesn't matter how much data, how much, how many data they will not, they will not vaccinate. And that's, that's, but I do, that's a very small segment of, of people that have been vaccine hesitant. That's certainly consistent with my limited experience uh, running a, a Provax page for a couple of years. And also as, as a parent speaking with other parents, I know people who are vaccine hesitant. I know people who are strongly anti-vax uh, and most of those are parents as, as well. So yeah, I agree that there is, um, there's certainly a lot of room for nuance in the way that we approach different types of people uh, yeah. with, uh, with different views on vaccines. Vaccine hesitancy is a really good term because it, it covers that gray area where people are suspicious of vaccines generally for what could be generously interpreted as good motives to, to yeah. coin a phrase because they, you know, simply because they've, they've got concerns and uh, maybe they're misinformed, maybe they're uninformed, or maybe they're simply underinformed. And those people can definitely be reached. They're not anti-vaxxers as such. Uh, some of them may be partially or fully vaccinated themselves, or and maybe they've vaccinated their kids with some vaccines, but they're more concerned about others. These people are definitely reachable and understanding where they're at and how they got there is the key to reaching them, I believe. And that's, again, it's been my experience speaking with people who used to be anti-vaxxers or vaccine hesitant and who've, who are now pro-vax and also speaking with other people who've simply refused to change their minds regardless of, of what information is presented to them. Absolutely. I, I, I quite agree. So what would you say then to people who argue, well, science has been wrong before, so we shouldn't be quick to accept what scientists say about new discoveries and medical developments, just in case they turn out to be wrong and even harmful in years to come. How would you respond to that? Sure, that's, you know, that, that's a very common, you know, question I get. And, um, you know, I would say, number one, I mean, vaccines have, you know, now a track record of, you know, some of them been, have been given in, for 50 and 60 years, decades and decades, even, even the quote unquote new, newer vaccines, such as the HPV vaccine and the rotavirus vaccines have, you know, 20 plus years of, of proven track record of safety and eff efficacy, uh, you know, so that, that, you know, when you look at every year in this, you know, the, the sheer amount of, um, the sheer amount of vaccines that have been given along this, this current schedule that's, you know, been adopted since the early nineties and is in the order of billions and billions of vaccines just in the U S alone, not, not, I mean, and, and that's not even, that's not even taking into account the rest of the, the, all over the world. Uh, you know, you, you just simply look at the, at the overwhelming data of, of vaccine safety, just on whether it's, whether it's uh, you know, medical studies, scientific journals, peer reviewed article articles by the thousands, um, you know, and, and, and then unfortunately every now and then a dubious study comes out that is often retracted that, you know, claiming, you know, spurious and often just, just plain false uh, information about safe vaccine safety. You know, so for me, it's just proven track record, number one, and just in real, real, in the real world, how many, how many of these have been given? Uh, you know, you, you look at, you look at the scientific literature, uh, the, it, it's, it's, you know, vaccine safety and efficacy is, is proven over and over. Now, getting back to your, getting to your point about, well, people will still claim, well, what about, you know, decades down the road? What about, how do we know about, you know, a vaccine that was given, that we've been given in the 80s and 90s? What about when this, in, you know, 50, 60 years later? And, you know, sadly, that's just really, that's just really show, that's just really displays kind of a misunderstanding of what vaccines do when, when, when they're given. You know, simply that, you know, the vaccine simply does what our body does each and every day and exposes a child, a, a, a child to a, specific type of antigen and creates an, an immune response to that antigen. And that happens 
hundreds of times a day as as early as infancy. So the, the this this argument that you know well how do you know the the MMR the chickenpox vaccine fifty years later will will find some long term effects? It's like well you you fundamentally that stems from a fundamental misunderstanding of what a vaccine really does in our body, which our body does time and time again each and every day. And if that's the argument you're using, well then you could you know you're 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 arguing against the body's own immune system. Thank you. I, I really like that response because you've you've given a good example there with vaccines and and the way they work. And yeah, the vaccine isn't doing something new or novel or something that the body's never seen before. It's simply helping the body to do what it's already trained to do, but it's just offering a shortcut and uh, to you know training the immune system. And and there's nothing magical or, or uh, super scientific about that. It's, it's just a, an easier way to arrive at a, the desired result. Well, yes. And, and a, a, a really common long-term kind of question mark that some of the anti-vax communities will bring is, is about um, additives and preservatives in the vaccine, namely um, aluminum and, of course, the thimerosal uh, <laughs> uh, thing for, for, for a long time. But they and other things like formaldehyde and things like that. But to, to understand how minuscule amount of, of these um, additives are in there and why they're in there, there's just, for instance, formaldehyde naturally exists in an infant's body at a higher, at a much higher degree than any, any amount of vaccine does. Uh, aluminum is exists in the form of a salt in, in vaccines. It's not a heavy metal. Um, and it actually makes the vaccine better at doing its job. Uh, the aluminum adjuvants make it so any given vaccine that contains aluminum adjuvants doesn't need as much antigen. So you're actually making a, a, the vaccine even safer and even more effective at pr producing a, an antigenic immune response. So, you know, the and the the again the amounts that uh, an infant is exposed to over the six and twelve month period of this of this uh, of this standard schedule is is far below any what we what would we be regarded as threshold of safety levels. So if I can summarize what you've said, yeah. then that the key answer to science has been wrong before. Therefore, what about vaccines? Is well. Vaccines have such an astonishingly good and consistent track record, and we've had them for so long, the vaccines that we have available have been available for so long, notwithstanding the more recently developed COVID-19 vaccines, which have at least been administered, you know, more than a billion times now. We, if there were significant problems, we would know about them. We know that there are some minor problems and that these problems are, are not insurmountable. Because we already have an exceptionally good track record with vaccines, the whole science was wrong before doesn't really apply because we've yet to see a case where science was wrong with vaccines. I'm pretty sure I, I have looked this up, but I've, I've looked at different pharmaceutical corporations and different fines and penalties they've received from government regulators. And yeah, maybe they've been fined for this or they've been penalized for that. And maybe they've been caught fudging results and, and uh, misrepresenting studies. And maybe a, a certain pharmaceutical they produced wasn't as effective as they said, or maybe they played down some of the side effects. But I have never, ever found that to be the case with a vaccine. I found it with a whole bunch of other pharmaceuticals, but as far as I'm aware, there's never been a case where a vaccine was knowingly produced in a way that was was faulty or didn't do its job or, or was dangerous. And even the Cutter incident was simply a case of manufacturing error, which was not known at the time, but that wasn't a completely separate kind of issue. As far as I'm aware, there's never been a vaccine that's turned out to be a dud. No, oh, and they and and you, and vaccine development is a is a long and arduous process for for a lot of these vaccines. And this, you know, I've, of course, the COVID vaccine is a little bit of a different, uh, you know, different story, but similar, but in a different fashion. But you know, it takes years to develop these vaccines to go through all the trials. And and uh, and you're right. I mean, it, the track record, you know, the it, the data speaks for itself. You know, and um, 
even 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 in the U.S. alone, uh, the COVID nineteen vaccine, we're past four hundred fifty million doses, and I think we're I think we're closing in on about two billion worldwide, if I'm not mistaken, total doses given across the world. And I mean, it's a staggering number, you know. And and certainly, you know, with anything, nothing's a hundred percent. I mean, that's not that's that's not true with with vaccines or with getting in a car and driving to work, you know, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, there's going to be rare, rare, uh, rare side effects, but uh, no, you're right. I, I think it's exactly right that there's, you, you, you will not find a, a case of, of, of a vaccine being improperly developed and marketed and then pulled for any reason. Vaccines have been tried to be developed and not made it to market, but that's because these, these came out during the trials. That's why I find it difficult to take anti-vaxxers seriously when they say, well, you know, the FDA has previously pulled medications that were initially thought to be safe and effective. So, well, you know, we can apply this to vaccines. I just, I just don't know of any examples. I don't know of any vaccine that's been taken off the market because it was unsafe or ineffective, with the exception of the Qatar incident, which, again, was a different kind of situation. Oh, they're, so, they're right. There was a one instance of a, a one of the rotavirus vaccines uh, that uh, did sh- did show, and it was still extremely rare, but uh, did show um, rates of of intussusception where bowel kind of folds in on itself, essentially, or or, or telescopes in on itself. But uh, and so that what that was that one was removed from the mar- from the market. It was still an incredibly rare occurrence and and one of the main reasons it was removed because we had from the market we had another um the the one the rotavirus vaccine we're still using that um the rates were exponentially uh lower so that decision and and the right one was made and that's like well we have this vaccine that is even safer and now the other the old one the rototech it was called was removed from the market so that that's a classic case of science doing what it's supposed to do Yes. And regulatory bodies following up as they're supposed to, and the science working as intended. Exactly, absolutely. If, if there was nefarious scheme, you know why 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 would why was that uh, product pulled pulled from the market? So you know once once the data did come sh- uh, to show that. So uh, let's move on to a scenario, a hypothetical scenario. Imagine a patient comes to you and says they believe they were injured by a vaccine that they received one month ago. And they describe their symptoms, which have only just manifested. And these symptoms don't match any known side effects of the vaccine that they received. How do you respond to that patient? Sure. Well, I believe that type of scenario more, more commonly occurs if in the conversation I'm having with a parent regarding their child. Um, and much more commonly, you know, a child, maybe they got their first round of uh, their two month vaccines and a month later comes in with, the, you know, an ear infection or having, you know, colic issues and things like this. And, you know, it's an old, it's an old term in, in scientific community and, and just broad, broader in general, you know, correlation does not imply causation, you know, um, adverse, adverse events do happen with vaccines, but they happen shortly after administration and, and very rare and are, are um, you, know, anaphy- you know, anaphylactic type reactions. Certainly a child might, you know, <laughs> be in pain for a couple of days because their arm is sore and they can't communicate to themselves other than, other than you know, <laughs> being a lot more fussy than they, than they were um, previously. So no, a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of these, well, and you know, the, a, very common term used in the anti-vaccine community is vaccine injury. A lot of these, you know, claim claim of vaccine injury are simply um, just uh, coincidental. You know, when you see when the vast majority of childhood, I don't like to use the word problems, but some issues, whether it's whether it's um, you know, a child develops allergies or you know, frequent ear infections. Or or starts to show signs of maybe maybe some developmental delay or or or, or signs of autistic spec, um, ASD or uh, or on the spectrum, these all occur far, 
vast majority of these are going to occur in the first 18 months of life when you first start to see signs. Oh, and by the way, you have to be getting vaccine, you know, vaccines during this time. So if you, if, you, if you look at it logically, you know, you've, there's never going to be a time where a child doesn't develop an issue or that where in the first 12 to 18 months of life where a vaccine has not been given in the past four to eight weeks. And so naturally, some people may look for something to, to attribute to, to, to um, what's, going, what's going on with their child and, and say, come in and say, you know, my child was fine until they got that vaccine a, a month ago and now they have an ear infection or they have allergies or they have, you know, they developed some eczema. And it's a, you know, unfortunately, this was going to happen regardless of, the, of whether or not the child was going to get the shot. And again, the correlation does not imply causation. But again, it, you know, again, it makes for um, an easy target, a low hanging fruit for um, the anti-vax community to kind of seize on this whole idea of vaccine injuries um, with that, you know, that the vast majority are attributed to just to common childhood illnesses the child was going to going to get anyway um, outside of the extremely rare anaphylactic reaction to a vaccine which of course if a child has an anaphylactic reaction then they should not get that vaccine going forward um, you know a lot of times sadly people will point to um, the VAERS reports or the VAERS data saying, you know, um, well, this, this VAERS report says that, you know, reports, you know, eczema in the VAERS reports, ear infections, and, you know, but as you know, the, the, those, those reports are, are a passive monitoring system that um, anybody can report to, not, um, regardless of whether or not it had anything to actually do with the vaccine. That's why you see things in the VAERS about gunshot wounds and car accidents and you know, there's some pretty wild stuff in there. <laughs> if anybody wants to go online and check it out. Yeah, I, um, there's a, a habit that anti-vaxxers has of, you know, going dumpster diving in the VAERS database to just to see what they can dredge up and, and attribute to vaccination. And if they see a time period correlation between when the vaccine was administered and the uh, manifestation of the symptoms, they go, oh, must have been the vaccine couldn't have been anything else even if there's no even if there's no published data supporting that so yeah it's it's um i entirely see what you're saying it's the whole correlation causation issue again but also particular i think for for new parents inexperienced parents who haven't had the experience of raising a child before don't know what to expect or maybe but only got a vague idea of what to expect and of course being almost paranoid about their child's health as as most new parents are as as we were when we had our first child when it's all new to you it takes a lot of reassuring to be told well no it's okay this is normal this is just a minor thing it passes you know this is colic it's easily treatable or you know this is this is just a bit of vomiting you'll get that from time to time it's no big deal Uh, if you specifically want to make life easier here's some recommendations you know, but when it's all new to you and you're seeing the stuff for the first time and and you haven't spoken much to people about child rearing before, then yeah, it can be pretty scary. Absolutely. And I think that that's one thing that the medical community and pediatricians and, and family practice docs like myself, maybe, you know, 20 years ago and even sooner, even sooner than that, maybe didn't do a very good job of Taking a little bit extra time and 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 listening to parents' concerns about about this and not just brushing them off as like you know well this is not the vaccine and and just you go on and you know sometimes because you're right that a lot of times these parents are just they're new parents they're 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 scared they're confused and and I think the newer generation of of pediatricians and and family docs uh, are, are are trained much more effectively I think at at having a little bit more of an in-depth conversation about alleviating fears about vaccines and helping new parents especially understand that they just want to, they just they just want somebody to, to, to listen to them and and to, and to and to not be brushed off and not just be have their concerns shoved under the rug and and you know move on to the next patient and i think unfortunately when that does happen that's that then does make 
uh, a parent more hesitant and maybe more likely to then seek seek advice in in the wrong direction or in the wrong channels. So I think the medical community is it has been guilty of 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 not taking and I understand busy clinics and things like that, but um, being a little bit more open to parents' concerns. Yeah, I, I certainly recognize it as a generational thing. Uh, my yeah. parents raised me partly with the guidance of Dr. Benjamin Spock's book, which mm -hmm. was quite groundbreaking for its time. Spock was considered extremely radical in his views and very progressive. Now, nowadays, of course, people will read Spock's book and consider it almost quaintly old-fashioned. Uh, right. But for his time, he was very far-sighted. He recognized some, you know, some child-rearing uh, methods needed to change, and he recognized the kinds of things that new parents needed to know about children and what to expect about behavior and, and this kind of thing. And, you know, turned out that he had some really great ideas that were extremely effective. But that, and that was quite a game changer for its time. And I think it's, it's that kind of breakthrough that sort of helps to, I think, uh, demystify the whole child-rearing child situation and also demystify sort of uh the communication between the doctor and and the and the patient or the doctor and the parent where the parent goes to the doctor expecting to you know be properly informed and and in previous generations doctors weren't always very good at that maybe brushed them off or just said you should already know this or look here's some basic ideas and and you know or look, you just have to take my word for it that this is just how things are, blah, blah, blah. Certainly doctors are far more accessible and communicative than they, they used to be. And I think Spox is a, a good example of that, the way parent and doctor communication has improved over the generations. Absolutely, absolutely. So I've, I've heard it said, and I've actually seen this argument made um, by anti-vaxxers, and I'm pretty sure... Uh, Dr. Paul Thomas, before he lost his license to practice, liked to use this argument as well. I've seen it said that the primary responsibility of a doctor is to listen to the patient, believe what they say, and deliver an appropriate solution. And pretty sure Paul Thomas used to use this to justify his response pandering to Andy Back's parents well I just listen to my my patients or I listen to the parents and I believe what they say and I respond accordingly that's my job do you agree with this or do you feel maybe that's uh, something of an oversimplification how how would you how would you des describe that sort of uh, that definition of the parent slash patient doctor relationship um, and should doctors always take patients' accounts of, of their health or their children's health at face value and then address solely on those? Sure. Um, I, I definitely 100% believe that doctors need to listen to their, to the, uh, their parents' concerns regarding their, ch their child um, and, and have a very open line of communication between the parent and, and the doctor. And it's because the parent-doctor parent, uh, parent relationship is critical to, to building trust. Uh, I, I do have a lot of issues with, with, um, with the statement that uh, believe, believe everything they, that their parent says and take it all at face value because in, in many ways, there's, Parents aren't what you'd say, you know, the parents know their, know their children a lot, but, you know, um, there's maybe not as much objectivity involved. And so I think if a parent says something regarding, especially when it comes to vaccines, I, I think it's disingenuous for the doctor who has the training that the, that the parent doesn't have, has the experience, has, has the um, education, has, has the the experience of, of, of taking care of probably hundreds if not thousands of, of other pediatric patients in their career. The trust aspect goes both ways. I think that the, the doctor needs to, to trust the, the parents the same way I think the parent has to put trust in the doctor's expertise and, and not just expect the doctor just to pander to 
every every whim they may say and take and take everything that parent says that um, about fears about vaccinations, especially at face value, when really the, there, there's a certain amount of subjective versus objective uh, objectivity here. And it's it's hard for a parent, I think, to be able to be fully objective when they're looking when they're talking about their own children. They're emotionally invested in their child. They, they deeply care about their child. But I think that that can also cloud judge cloud a parent's um, judgment and maybe uh, maybe cause them to misperceive something that then if if they share that concern with the doctor and the doctor just just takes that at face value and and doesn't maybe offer another another perspective then you're talking about a i think a disruption and a breakdown actually of the parent parent doctor relationship yeah i really hear what you're saying there because if the doctor is too credulous and simply accepts everything at face value without conducting any kind of examination or, or pursuing, you know, evidence for, for the account that's been presented, then you've definitely got a serious breakdown here. There's been a breakdown in the information flow whereby the, the doctor is simply accepting information from the parent or patient without providing any pushback in, in the form of a, an informed opinion on the basis of, of greater knowledge and understanding of, of various disorders. And also the, it's the doctor's role to inform the patient about what is actually happening rather than simply to say, yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah, you're probably right. Let's just go with your idea. You know, that's not the doctor's job. We go to the doctor to become more informed about what's going on with our health and our children's health. And it's uh, a breach of that, that sacred trust that uh, we place in doctors to, for them to simply turn around and go, yeah, yeah, that, that must be it. And I think also in, you've got significant problems arise when, for example, a patient comes presenting a, a fake disorder. So, for example, in the case of factitious disorder, when a, a patient comes to a doctor claiming to have a disorder or a problem, medical problem that they don't actually have, if a doctor simply took that account at face value and responded accordingly, they've become complicit in what's effectively a malpractice um, because they are mistreating a patient by addressing a problem that isn't really there. And of course, you've this sometimes gets transferred to children where a, a, a parent has... Uh, a factitious disorder superimposed on a child, what used to be called uh, Munchausen's by proxy, I believe. And many children have suffered terribly as a result of completely unnecessary medical procedures and medications delivered to them because doctors were led to believe that the child had a problem it didn't really have. Uh, And sometimes those problems have only been uh, unearthed by other doctors or specialists coming in and looking much more closely with a more objective point of view and saying, hang on, the evidence isn't really here for this. Um, and maybe we need to look beyond the child for the real cause of what's happening here. So I, I totally agree with you. It's not as simple as saying, well, I, I believe what the parent is saying. I believe what the, what the patient is saying. The parent or patient could be misinformed, could be wrong, could be misinterpreting things and might even be unknowingly incorrect or knowingly and deliberately uh, incorrect and presenting false information. So, yeah, it's definitely not a simple case of listen to what the the patient says and respond accordingly. The goal of the, the physician is to arrive at the root cause of the issue and address it specifically. And this gets me to... A related argument, uh, a very common argument used by anti-vaxxers, which is that mothers or or fathers, but it's typically mothers because that that tends to have a more of an emotional pull. They say mothers know their children better than anyone else. So they are justified in rejecting medical advice when it conflicts with their maternal instinct. How would you respond to a parent who came to you with that argument? You know, it's a very, very common, uh, very common argument. And you know, if you go, if you go online and, and read some of, you know, you know, anti-vax Facebook pages or some, some groups that maybe lean towards that direction, you, you, you come across over and over 
I just need to trust my gut. My, my gut instinct tells me that something about this vaccine is wrong or, and, and many of these groups that will, that, that, uh, idea gets reinforced that, well, you're good, you know, that's, that's your maternal instinct talking, talking, and, and, and nobody knows your child more than you do. And you need to listen to that. And, you know, um, big problem, obviously, I mean, you know, big problems with that. That's very problematic. I mean, absolutely. Mother, you know, there, I'm a firm believer in maternal instinct and absolutely mothers can pick up on cues from their, from their child, even just based on their type of Cry. They know what their child needs. Um, different different actions. Um, that's because that's that's part of our DNA. That's that's in, in you know born into us. But when when it comes to specifically with vax, with when it comes to specifically about vaccines, I I, I get I I've ran into this question or this this issue a lot, whether it's online or or in my practice, where my gut instinct tells me something, you know, and and. You know, and in most cases, what's really going on here, Dave, is that this is parental anxiety manifesting itself as a misinterpretation of maternal instinct saying something wrong. It's it's a buildup of, in most cases, these are young first-time parents that have misguided fears, often through misinformation, that gets manifested as parental anxiety. And that that fear, the irrational fear of vaccines, is gets misinterpreted as maternal instinct. When in fact, maternal instinct is 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 has nothing to do with these uh, feelings of of uh, vaccine fears, where where more mothers will, will come to me, and it's a very common thing. I mean, I'm not going to lie, and I mean, every, I think every parent comes into that first, second, third, even fourth vaccine visit a little nervous. Absolutely. I think it'd be a, a little unusual not to be a little nervous about it, but that's, that's where, you know, my job comes in. <laughs> that's part of my job is to, to say, you know, listen, I understand you have fears. I understand you have concerns. I, you know, we, maybe we can talk about some of the, some of the things that are causing this, this idea that you feel that something is wrong because you feel your gut is telling you this. And most, and, and, and in every case, this just comes back to when it comes to vaccines, it's just, that's just anxiety, usually through misinformation, something they've heard that, you know, is, is, is you know, from, from anti-vaxxers or this, or, or different things like that. And again, this just comes back to simply taking time to listen to the patient, listen to the parent, um, address their concerns, be understanding, but also at the same time, tell them, you know, this is, this is where I believe this is coming from. This is coming from a place of, 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 of I don't like to maybe to term misguided anxiety, but maybe just maybe misinformation that's manifesting as parental anxiety. I like that response. I, th- I think that's a, a sensitive and, and well-rounded response that it doesn't downplay or dismiss parental fears or concerns but at the same time helps to contextualize them and encourage the parents to say, Hey, you know, well, let's, let's look at this together and let's, uh, you know, let's listen to, listen to you. Let's hear what you've, you've got to say and let's get to the root of your concerns. I appreciate that you have, you know, maternal instincts and, and gut feelings. And I'm quite happy to, to listen to those, but in the meantime, I have the expertise and it's my job to help you to work through this and, for all that you might know your child very well, you're not trained in the diseases of the child. You're not trained in the diagnosis of those diseases or the, the, the treatment of those diseases. So if I can meet you partway, maybe we can have a dialogue about this and, and uh, I'll bring my expertise to your situation and help you get through this. And I, I, I like the way that you framed that. I, I think that's a very, uh, that's a very good and, and sensitive way to address the, the issue. Yes. Thank you. So what advice would you give to someone who's on the fence about vaccines, but wants more information about their safety and effectiveness? Sure. You know, I, um, you know, a lot of this kind of, we, we've, we've already sort of talked about, I think, um, I think number one, 
certainly first and foremost, it all starts with a good parent doctor relationship where, where the parent trusts the, the, their, their, their child's pediatrician or family doctor. It, if, if you don't have that, if you don't have that trust, um, you're, you're going to run into some problems when it comes to, you know, parents that are maybe on the fence, on the fence, or maybe a little mistrustful about vaccines. That's, 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 Step one, I always tell, I also always encourage parents to talk with, talk with friends who have vaccinated their children, talk to family members, talk to, you know, lay, lay people not in the medical field that have fully vaccinated, that, that did their, that, 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 they, you know, that uh, had their children um, get vaccinated on the standard, you know, CDC schedule. You know, uh, that's, I think that's important to get perspectives, not only from, from the, from your child's doctor, but also from uh, other trusted family members, friends, and, 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 and other people like that. I tell them, you know, on, if you're on the fence, I think about the worst thing a, a parent can do is go online and, and get into some of these uh, chat groups. Um, I like to call them echo chambers where, you know, you, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've gone on to those and I just, I mean, to some of these, and I just think to myself, if I was a, if I was a young 24 year old mom to be who, you know, you know, maybe even has a, you know, call, you know, college degree, but maybe may, doesn't have a scientific background or anything like that or, or anything. I mean, I would be horrified. I would be scared. You know, I would be scared beyond my, beyond belief. So I, I mean, I tell parents, one of the things to say is like, get your information on vaccines from healthcare providers from people who have done this before and, and, and really stay away from some of these, a lot of these online, uh, you know, echo chambers, like I call them, um, you know, I, we can definitely talk about some good on, some good online resources that we could mention. I'm not sure, if, you know, we can talk about that now or later, but, um, you know, there are some great, that, that, uh, on the flip side, you know, I don't want to demonize social media or anything because there's some wonderful resources that, um, that people can have a lot of questions answered. They can, you know, tremendous search tools that, uh, you know, it's, it's all about getting, it's all about going, it's all about seeking information and going about um, getting vaccine information the right. And I would tell people, you know, and look, I mean, in the real world, your, your pediatrician doesn't have a half hour to sit down and talk about all of your vaccine questions, you know, and, and so, um, you know, maybe, they can talk with them and say, "Hey, what do you have any site, any websites that you trust that you can go on and I can, you know, find out more information?" Or, or a lot many doctors' offices have vaccine, you know, have 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 educational um, uh, literature on vaccines if they don't have time in the in the in the, in the visit. Um, you know, so that's that that's what a lot of a lot of my parents who are on the fence. I you know I I think a lot of it comes back to what we've already talked about about having you know developing a, a good relationship and, and listening to their um, and not being dismissive, but also, you know, trying to steer the patients in, in the right direction where they don't go down some of these rabbit holes and, and end up with more questions than answers. <laughs> Just in the, the last section of this interview, I'd like to briefly discuss the pandemic. Um, can you tell me what public health measures are being used to fight it where you live in Tennessee? Sure. So um, sadly, you know, Tennessee's not doing well with uh, with our vaccination rates. We're, um, I think we're ranked about 40th in the country. 51% uh, uh, of our uh, state population has received one vaccine and only about 43% have received uh, two doses. Um, and that and that ranks right around, I think, 40th overall, um, far below other other areas of the country, um, north, uh, northeast, west coast, um, many of those states are, are, are at or near around 60% or a little higher, you know, and sadly, you know, our, our, our state is lagging behind and, and we're definitely seeing, um, you know, uh, the results of that. Um, schools, unfortunately, this, um, you know, many, many school districts were slow to adopt uh, mask mandates in younger kids. Now we're playing catch up, unfortunately. My in, in my school district, uh, the school district, my, I have a 15 year old now. He's he's fully vaccinated, but only about two weeks ago, and this was about three weeks into the school year, did they finally issue mask mandates for all for grades um, from you know kindergarten all the way through uh, 12th grade or um, 
you know, a high school as, as we call it here. So sadly, that's a trend in, the, in, in parts of the country, especially the South where uh, vaccination rates are hovering around that 40% fully vaccinated. You know, a lot of, a lot of uh, if, as far as public health measures, public health, public health officials in, in my state are, 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 are trying to, 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 to continue with this, with this message of getting vaccinated, mat, you know, issuing mat, proper mask mandates, but sadly, you know, in uh, in certain states, um, we're 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 uh, struggling to get that message to um, to to be heeded by enough of the population. And uh, so, you know, if you look at rates around the country, hospitalizations, um, ICU capacities are are worse off when you look at states with lower vaccination rates. And it's uh, the data is there for anybody to look at. It's quite clear. We do have a degree of contact tracing. You know, contact tracing has been shown to be quite effective. And, and you know, schools, all schools do have a very strict guidelines of any, any child who, for instance, in schools, any child who tests positive, you know, any child who's been in contact um, is automatically isolated and tested as well. And, you know, we've been fairly successful in schools. You know, there's actually a CDC study that just came out yesterday that showed that they did studies in the U.S. Uh, schools that had mask mandates versus comparing schools that did not, and actually, um, COVID uh, COVID infection rates in the schools without mask mandates were three point five times higher than the schools with mask mandates. And I believe that I believe it's I believe you can find the study um, online. I believe it came out yesterday or the day before. Uh, very interesting. I mean, and so it's just it just reinforces what we already know. Um, we we we've, we've kept schools open. Um, we need to do a better job with contact tracing. We need to obviously for every the, the answer for you know for everything is getting our vaccine rates higher. Um, you've been much more successful in Australia than we have, and sadly enough, you know our in in the U.S. we have a you know our 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 vaccination efforts have ran into a lot of uh, politicization and polarization, which has only served to um, further hinder public health efforts when, you know, in my mind, whenever you try to politicize public health, you're, you're just asking for tragedy and disaster. And you, you see it happening. We've, we've passed 660,000 deaths uh, in the U.S. Um, I think I've mentioned to you earlier, now one in every 500 Americans has died from COVID since the pandemic started. Well, I, I certainly hope uh, Tennessee can start turning things around. Uh, we were relatively slow getting the vaccine our government took a while federal government took a while to sort of get its act together and uh, acquire the vaccines we needed and then um, and then organize statewide and, and nationwide uh, vaccination efforts but we're we're getting there federal government has said they're aiming for a um, a threshold of 80 percent vaccination and that's the point at which we can start properly relaxing the 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 biggest yeah. um, measures like closed borders and that kind of thing, which I think is a pretty good target. So uh, we'll see how long how long it takes us to get there. We, you know, now a big, uh, you know, what's what's I think going to be a big game changer. I hope, and I, I hope this we see this manifest is once the at once the Pfizer vaccine got full FDA approval about three weeks ago, um, it did allow uh, President Biden just announced um, a couple of days ago about uh, a issuing mandates for um, all federal workers. Um, and, you know, are you talking about an additional um, hundred million of doses of vaccines that will be able to get, be given um, now that we have that full FDA approval for the Pfizer and the Moderna will be coming soon too. And I think that will hopefully maybe eventually spur more people to encourage to, to get the vaccine. Cause I believe you're right. I think that 80%, nobody knows this number for sure, of course, but sadly, we're, all, we're, we're, we're halfway there in certain in places like my state. <laughs> you know, we have a long way to go. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned of what's going to happen with uh, the pediatric population that can't get vaccinated yet. And um, as more adults get vaccinated, the virus is going to need somewhere to go. And, it's, and, and sadly, I think we're going to see rising cases amongst children. Uh, we do know that the Delta variant is more likely to make younger, healthier people sick. So, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that with the, with the full approval and now you even st start to see universities have, have, have said they're gonna mandate their, you know, 
college students to um, become vaccinated. Healthcare systems are now across the nation are issuing mandates that you know you either get the jab or you or you have to or, you, or you're not working here, <laughs> you know, or or you know various measures. But I, I think we're getting there. It's just been a, it's going to be another slow and painful process for the United States. I think. If people want to follow your work, where can they find you online? Sure. Well, I have, um, you know, I, right now, my biggest, pre- my biggest presence is on Facebook. I have uh, my Facebook, um, my Facebook page is, it's, it's Peter, uh, Peter space Sears. Um, and feel free to, you know, you can, you can, uh, join me there. Um, there's a couple, um, great, uh, great other resources I'd love to mention. One I love is a Facebook group that has about 70, over 70,000 members now. Let me just make sure I have the they recently, uh, it's called Vaccine Talk, an evidence-based discussion forum. And it's actually a great resource because it allows um, people from both, st- both viewpoints to come in and you can ask questions. A lot of great minds um, post on there from uh, fields of immunology, from medicine, virology, uh, people who are involved in vaccine uh, research. Um, there's a lot of good, that's a really great resource if, if someone's interested in maybe like a, a a beneficial um, educational uh, vaccine uh, Facebook page. Uh, um, there's a really great website called voicesforvaccines.org. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Um, that's another great uh, 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 website that has a lot of great information on vaccines. Um, another one is it's uh, vaxo- vaxopedia.com. Um, is a is a really good one. Those are those are three that you know, really stand out. And and I do you know I also I go online when I have time. And you know I have parents that ask ask questions. And you know I'm happy to you know take time to to discuss with them. And 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 I know that your uh, your podcast uh, Dave is just also a really great resource too. And um, you know again I thank you so much for um, letting me come on and and uh, talk vaccines. <laughs> No, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sears, for your time. I've, I really appreciated it. And it's always great to get a medical professional or a science professional onto the podcast to, to share their knowledge. I'm just a regular dad. I don't have any relevant qualifications in any relevant field. So it's really important to me that, that this podcast gets uh, good, solid information from people who are properly trained. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to to share your knowledge with me today. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on. It was, uh, it was great.